Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have uh, three wonderful students here with me today. I say that every time, and uh, as always, I mean it. Good to have the three of you here today. Let's do some introductions. Let's do the co-hosts of the show today. Andrew, start with you. Yeah, my name's uh, Andrew Collier. I'm uh, finishing up my third year at Rocky Vista University. Going into? Uh, planning on family medicine and possibly sports medicine. And you have a podcast coming up pretty soon. That's right. I've been looking at uh, lavender essential oils used in treatment of depression and anxiety. So. And initially, this gave me a Charlie horse right here, right? <laughs> that's right, in the forehead. And if you're a medical student that's been with me before, you know exactly where I pointed. Yeah. <laughs> and Ryan? Yep, I am Ryan Peters, also a third-year med student at Rocky Vista in Ivins, Utah. Uh, so yeah, last rotation of third year. Not that you're looking forward to finishing your third year. No, but I am looking forward to finishing <laughs> step two. <laughs> when does that happen? Uh, middle of July. We, sh we probably should do a strategies for passing step two at some point. We've done some po uh, podcasts on how to match, how that might work for people, and I think those actually turned out pretty well. I think they were pretty useful. Might be something we look at in the future. What are you going into, Ryan? Uh, internal medicine. Infernal medicine, did you say? Uh, no, internal. <laughs> internal medicine. <laughs> internal. I'm completely jealous. I, uh, <laughs> I wanted to be smart enough to go into internal medicine. Mm -hmm. Apparently that's where the really smart people go. And uh, at one point even thought about rheumatology, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So I think you've got a great uh, career choice. Tell me, tell me you also have a podcast with... I do. So Katie Clark and I will be doing a podcast here soon talking about ADHD. ADHD. Yeah. I look forward to it. I don't know that we've done a podcast on ADHD, have we? No, we haven't. It's amazing. It seems like maybe we should have hit a major topic like that before this, although we should probably have Dr. Thomas yeah. be the, uh, the uh, interviewer for that uh, topic. She'd be amazing at it. Uh, Thomas. Yes. A deeper introduction. A deeper introduction. I'm Thomas Chandy. I am a third-year medical student. I'll be uh, finishing my third year next week after this rotation. This is my elective rotation in psychiatry. I'm planning to go into psychiatry uh, as my choice for my residency. I'm very excited about psychiatry. And uh, this is your second third year psychiatry rotation, so really this is like 3.5, and I think we mentioned that in the last podcast. Yeah. Uh, tell, me, tell me how you decided to go into psychiatry. Okay. So prior to joining medical school, I was involved in tech startups. Um, particularly, I helped develop online medical education. Um, I, I, I developed a company called Viomed, which developed um, online medical education, continuing medical education for physicians. And we provided education to about 100,000 physicians and partnered with 80 academic centers to, de to deliver their education online. And uh, our, one of our main partners was Harvard Medical School, and another partner was Columbia Medical School. And I got to work closely with Columbia's psychiatry department to develop their continuing um, education and their grand rounds online and um, share it with people around the country. And in addition, um, develop something called the Columbia University Psychopharmacology Forum, which is a private um, HIPAA-compliant portal for discussions about uh, psychiatry and psychopharmacology. And I think that experience really helped me uh, get excited about psychiatry. Um, I grew up with a mother who's a psychiatrist. Uh, hi, mom, if you're listening. 
Uh, love cool. you. Love you. Oh, that is, see, now that is awesome. I like that. Yeah. We, we uh, should get your mom on. We've had mothers who have come on. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, we've had uh, mothers who have come on the podcast in the past. We had uh, um, uh, V, um, <laughs> her name just escaped me, starts with a V. Her mother is a world-class researcher in microbiome. Valentina, thank you. Yes, V. Valentina. Her mother's a world-class researcher in uh, gut microbiome, and uh, we, we we were better for the experience. So, and anyway. Dad, too. Happy Father's Day. Don't want to leave you out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you had this experience, and yet, despite all of these things going pretty well, you decided, huh? Yeah. Well, I come from a family of physicians. Everybody in my family is a doctor. My father, my mother, and my brother, and. I felt like I was missing something, and uh, and I, I chose that um, medicine later in life, and this is now my second career, and I chose it because I think it's a place where I could show the greatest compassion and listening skills uh, to my patients, and psychiatry, I think, is a place where I can really um, work on those skills. Now, I want you to think very, very carefully before you answer these questions. First of all, uh, the CME that you delivered uh, developed for world-class institutions is almost as good as our content, isn't it? Very similar. Very similar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the second question is, our uh, consistent uh, 30 to 70 people that listen to these podcasts is on par with the thousands of people that you provide CME to. True. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Uh, you pass. <laughs> I, <laughs> Thomas, you're a good sport. And, and I also, um, I know that this podcast is, it has the potential to be quite a long podcast, but I also want to thank both you and Andrew for doing something that I think is a lot of fun. Uh, you guys just barely came in from a barbecue. You guys put together a barbecue for the patients on the unit. And uh, Andrew, you made some pies. Yeah, we were able to uh, talk to the patients and whip up some uh, rhubarb, blueberry, and apple pies for them to enjoy. I would call the third pie cinnamon and sugar pie with some apple in it. I've been accused by my family as having a sugar pie that includes apple in it. I think it's a wonderful <laughs> pie. You did, a, you did a great job, Thomas. The burgers were wonderful. Uh, I really appreciate that you guys would do something fun for the patients like that. Thank you. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and tackle the topic. Now, uh, Thomas, you came to me and you said, I want to do uh, a, a TMS topic. Help me understand how this came into your consciousness. So again, I have to thank my mother for this. So um, my mother moved to Singapore uh, to chase my father, who's a scientist and, and physician. And my, while she was there, she realized that many patients uh, were hesitant to, to use medications for their therapy of their psychiatric therapy. And largely that was because of the stigma associated with medication. So she started treating patients with TMS, and she went and got training um, outside of her uh, tr traditional psychopharmacology training in TMS. And then she started talking to me about it, and I was like, wow, this is an incredible thing. I, I knew as a child she was doing ECT, and that was also something that was very interesting to me, but this is a, a new therapy that you know could be non-invasive and outside of um, the, an inpatient setting. In an outpatient setting, you could, you could do this treatment, and so I was really impressed by that. And then subsequently, I read this article about Stanford's new um, therapy called the Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy. Let's say that five times. It's, <laughs> it's saint, uh, saint, saint, saint. <laughs> yeah, the saint therapy. And so 
I, I think that really excited me because the, the, the numbers that were coming out from the study, it was a small study, and it was done a few years ago, but it really showed that TMS could be a, a potential second-line therapy to psychopharmacology and really help a lot of patients. So why why do we need TMS? I mean, you're it's expensive. Yes. Why do we need it when we have, I just threw together a quick list, ECT, which is also expensive, ketamine, which is quite expensive if you get the branded uh, stuff, lithium, cheap, SSRIs, cheap, SNRIs, cheap, MAOIs, cheap, TCAs, cheap, non-SSRIs like... Uh, um, trazodone and uh, um, mirtazapine, or even uh, who knows, maybe uh, lavender. <laughs> lavender, yes. All, all of these different <laughs> therapies are, are important. So, well, first let me let me look, talk about the problem of depression, and then and then I'll go into that. So, depression is a very serious problem affecting our society. It affects about three hundred million people. There's over eight hundred thousand suicides every year. And um, depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. It's, the, it, it's one of the 10 most debilitating illnesses, and 30% of people who are treated for, with major depression um, will not achieve remission after two or more treatment trials, and that's what we call treatment-resistant depression. Now, I'm, I'm going to jump in here for just a moment because I, I think... My understanding is that uh, most people, after their first trial, only about 30% of the people get a recovery, and about 15% of the people on placebo get recovery. So our NNTs are what, somewhere around six or seven? Yes. Right, so so this is two trials. You pick up another 15, 30, you, you get to about 60% after a second trial of SSRIs. I, I didn't know it was that high. So yeah. that's, that's better than I was aware of. Yeah, so I think that's one of the barriers is that it's, it's not 100% no. foolproof. And I think that's one of the challenges we face is that the, the fact that psychopharmacology has its side effects, it's not 100% foolproof. Um, and we want therapies that are, are gonna be safe, tolerable, and rapidly acting, durable, and effective. And these, uh, the current therapies um, in, in terms of psychopharmacology are not perfect. ECT, though, has, is, has been shown um, a lot of uh, uh, strong results, and I think you had a podcast about that. Yeah, I think, uh, Max and Michaela, you, you mm -hmm. reminded me earlier. Yeah. yeah, thank goodness you reminded me. I would have struggled to, even though I remember Max and Michaela, I would have struggled, struggled to put all that together. Uh, you have some numbers here that um, are fairly important, I think. Uh, you did mention that the World Health Organization has this as a top 10 debilitating illness, right, depression. I made the case with all these medications, why do we need something more? And your answer is, these don't help everybody, right? There's still this portion that don't get well. It's also my understanding, Thomas, that once somebody goes through that second trial, not much tends to work anymore. And, and that might be in part because most of our models at that point are still based on serotonin with a few molecules that have some dopaminergic action, right, like uh, bupropion. Yeah, our first-line therapy is, are really selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors as well as cognitive behavioral therapy. And we've been learning a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy here on the unit. Um, I came up with a mnemonic BET for the three legs of the cognitive behavioral therapy, which are uh, behaviors, emotions and thoughts, 
And I think that is, um, you know, basically behaviors. What do we, what what do we do affects how we think. Emotions, what we feel affects how we think and act. And our thoughts, what we think affects how we we feel and act. And these three are are part of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the first line along with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors (SSRIs). One of the things I like about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is that it gives a patient the ability to look at the way they think about things, right? They don't let their emotions decide how they think about things. They don't let behaviors think, decide how they think about things. They're able to choose their actual thoughts and live with more accurate thoughts. I don't know if any of you do this. Um, at times I catastrophize. Mm-hmm. Now I, I know that do. you don't at all. <laughs> I definitely do. <laughs> I want I, I do still want to go back. I, I think we jumped uh, you're doing a great job covering this and I want I want to go back to one point and that is that with depression, it's not like people are just sad, right? Mm-hmm. This is a debilitating condition. And, and this is very interesting to me. You have some numbers listed here that I want to go back to. 56% of the national annual health care burden is associated with the cost of depression, yes. treatment of the cost of depression. 47.7% of the unemployment burden and 32.2% of the productivity burden. So if we could address depression, we would have a much more functional society, which I think is remarkable. Now the other part of this, I remember reading one time, and I I haven't seen follow-up data on this, I remember reading at one point that people who lost their job during the Great Recession, so back in 2008, those people that lost their job, these are non-depressed patients, it wasn't that they were set back a year till they could get their same type of job back. They often lost six or seven years in their career progression. I've often thought that our patients with depression who lose their jobs because of depression can't quite make it work, right? They're, they're not jumping in and out of the, the, force, uh, the workforce once they get well. They're losing a huge chunk of their life and the things they've worked for, and I think I think to me that's one of the untold stories of depression is this significant effect on your life trajectory. In any case, I, I wanted to go back to that. Now we also I think we wanted to do just a very quick high yield portion about right here. Does that sound right? Yeah, sounds right. Um, and it's not Sige caps. <laughs> that, that's right. I was I was told by Dr. Roundy that. SIG caps that I had had in my head was actually SIG E caps, which dates back to uh, the, res- the um, prescription of energy capsules for people with uh, depression. SIG or prescription yeah. energy capsules and SIG E caps, sleep, interest, concentration, SIG, guilt, guilt, energy, <laughs> concentration, appetite, psychomotor slowing, suicidality, and the one that's not captured in this. I think the depressed mood is the one that's kind of outside of the... Siggy Caps mnemonic, yeah. Did you have another mnemonic you liked a lot, Andrew? I don't think I did. I know somebody, we've had other uh, mnemonics um, that, that we've had mentioned before, and I just want to make sure if anybody wanted to bring that up. I think it's could. important to mention that we need five of those uh, criteria to, to meet depression over and lasting at least two weeks. Very important. And also probably worth remembering that appetite can be increased or decreased and sleep can be increased or decreased, but the others all go one way, right? Sure. It, it's always uh, generally worse. Um, so 
if somebody doesn't get well, so we have SSRIs, they're cheap, that's the first thing we throw at somebody, and then after that it gets pretty complicated, right? Uh, and I think one of the treatments we even didn't mention was VNS, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it gets more complicated. Can you tell me a little bit more about the definition of treatment-resistant depression? Sure. So, um, treatment-resistant depression, it basically, according to what I've read, is um, likely to be two or more, um, you, you try two or more trials with medication, and when you fail those, then you are, you're considered, um, you're, you're considered vulnerable for treatment-resistant depression. And the current first lines are, you know, as I mentioned, the serotonin, receptor, selective serotonin receptor uptake, and cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. And um, I think roughly about 30% of the po population who are taking medications for uh, major depressive disorder have treatment-resistant depression. Yeah. And uh, patients with treatment-resistant depression are two times more likely to be hospitalized with uh, major depressive disorder. And the healthcare costs for treatment-resistant depression are six times greater than persons with non-treatment-resistant non depression, major depressive disorder. And some of the characteristics that I think are important is that there's an increased uh, symptoms of severity, increased suicidality, uh, increased higher number of uh, lifetime depressive episodes, and then morbid anxiety and anhedonia, which is the loss of interest. And there's more likely to have physical illnesses, including autoimmune conditions, thyroid gland disease, cardiac disease, and cerebrovascular disease. And one uh, person that I read about, one article I read about, um, thought you considered the potential mechanism to be about social environmental stress that can change the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and uh, function and responsiveness, resulting in oxidative stress and inflammation that attacks molecular structures, including mitochondria that produce the biochemical en energy required for cell functioning. So th this treatment-resistant depression can really uh, have a biological effect on the body. Yeah. Again, just very, very briefly, the first-line treatments of depression, we mentioned these already, SSRIs, SNRIs, uh, bupropion, which more people know as Wellbutrin, mirtazapine, maybe there's hu huge weight gain liability with uh, mirtazapine. Very briefly, second-line treatments are MAOIs, TCAs. Um, and then there's an important question. So you'll, you'll sometimes have uh, shelf questions. I'm rumor has it, right? I, mm -hmm. I don't really talk to very many students after their shelf exam, but the prep work seems to suggest that you need to be able to recognize in those shelf exam questions where you are, might be on that treatment algorithm, right? So if somebody has been uh, unsuccessful with a first-line treatment, you might try a second-line treatment. And then one of the other things you might need to know on those second-line treatments is the time to discontinuation before you start something like an MAOI, which is typically 14 days, unless you're taking fluoxetine, which has a monster half-life, right? So yeah. you got to wait until that washout period before you restart those MAYs to avoid serotonin. Very good. You guys are on fire today. Um, now, there's another high-yield question that quite often shows up on the shelf exam in terms of this typical treatment algorithm, and that is if you have somebody with uh, severe depression and safety concerns, you would hospitalize those 
people and tend to give them ECT, right? That's that's uh, the one answer that's pretty locked in. If somebody is suicidal and severely depressed, ECT is quite often the answer on those uh, PrEP exams. But that, that might be changing a little bit. We now have ketamine that's starting to show up. I think the data on the infusions is probably uh, something that I'd like to delve into in another uh, podcast. We didn't find the uh, same kind of evidence that ketamine treats that uh, acute suicidality when we looked at the S-ketamine treatment, but that might be something that pops up a little bit later. We'll, we'll maybe see how that goes. So so now back to you. What are the FDA-approved treatments for uh, treatment-resistant depression then? So there are a few major treatments. One is the third-line, uh, third-generation antipsychotics, uh, aripiprazole, Abilify, and uh, brexipiprazole, uh, Rixulti. These are D2 receptor partial agonists. And uh, then there's a second generation antipsychotics, which include quetiapine, which is Seroquel, and olanzapine, Zyprexa. Uh, quetiapine and olanzapine have sedative effects, and olanzapine has a risk of weight gain. I would say they both do, but on your shelf exam, olanzapine is more commonly noted to have that. And then um, S-ketamine which is a derivative of ketamine, a glutamate uh, N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor, MDMA receptor antagonist. And ketamine is um, a dissociative drug that is FDA approved for surgical anesthesia. Yeah. I want to just make a couple of comments very quickly. Oh wait, go ahead and finish up with ketamine here. You have a yeah. couple more notes that I think yeah, I was so, saying. So I think some of the things about ketamine is that um, there is some uh, risks of sedation, dissociation, and potential for abuse. Although there's um, new studies which are showing that it has rapid uh, remission in depressive symptoms and it, that happen, it happens within two hours, it requires some um, very careful um, administration with people who are very well trained in ketamine. My impression is that those are the infusion studies and not the nasal insufflation. Is that, That's is that what you were reading? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, I, and I, again, I, I still have to read. I, I haven't. So we, so we went through the. Um, trials that were submitted for the S-ketamine approval. I wasn't as impressed by that as I wanted to be, and I think we're still waiting to see the time when you can do, you, you can buy ketamine for pennies on the gallon, I'm told. I don't know that that's actually the truth, but uh, I was just talking to our pharmacist today, trying to figure out how we might get some ketamine. Um, and uh, if, if we can give that as an infusion, that might be a game changer for people with depression and the cost would be uh, much less. It would be the cost of the infusion rather than the special cost of the S-ketamine potentially. Another therapy on top of the ketamine, which is the, uh, another last line, is the neurotherapeutic devices, which TMS is part of, and ECT is also part of. So ECT, which Michaela and, and Max talked about, uh, induces brief seizures that stimulate neurons and produce neuroplastic changes that improve mood. And now um, this other new treatment, uh, which we're going to talk about more today, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is FDA approved in 2007. Um, I think there's also one other device that has uh, FDA approval, and that is a, a VNS device. Oh, yeah. And I, I totally spaced that off when we were getting ready for this. Okay. Uh, Dr. Marangel uh, would be very disappointed in me, one of my mentors when I went through my residency program. Uh, again, just going back very, very quickly, I think olanzapine is only approved for treatment of treatment-resistant depression when it is coupled with uh, fluoxetine, right? They made a uh, pill that was sometimes referred to as Zipzac, Prozac, and Zyprexa, Zipzac. 
Um, and then the uh, quetiapine approval, I didn't remember. So that's, that's one that I, I, I appreciate you reminding me of. Uh, let's go then to um, the challenges of treating treatment-resistant depression. So up to this point, I just want to kind of summarize where we've been. Depression is bad. There are a lot of people that don't recover based on the tools we have. When we start looking at that group, so we're carving out the treatment-resistant group to now talk about how we can tackle that so that this um, unsuccessfully treated portion of the population can be more successfully treated. Does that sound like where we're kind of at at the moment? That's exactly where we're at, yeah. All right, tell me about the barriers to treatment of treatment-resistant depression. So there's, you know, there's a few first-line treatments that we, we discussed. One is psychopharmacology, and as I mentioned before, there's varying reactions and side effects to medication, and sometimes it requires testing of these medications to find medications that work, and there's a lot of failure to respond to this first, these first-line psychopharmacology. So, so just to reiterate then, treatment-resistant depression, we still try to hit with the same hammer, so to speak. We'll, we'll keep trying with combinations of SSRIs and traditional antidepressants like bupropion. We might try combinations of bupropion, uh, citalopram and maybe even mirtazapine where we have uh, varying mechanisms of action. So we might we might try these soups of antidepressant to try and get something. And even then, I don't know that we have a lot of data and we still have people that largely don't have recovery. It's true. Okay, yeah. so, so then the next treatment is? So the next treatment is ECT, which we, we mentioned before, um, where um, a doctor applies electrical current directly to the regions of the patient's brain. And this process, the specialist will induce a brief therapeutic seizure, and that's what Michaela and Max talked about. And that seizure is about 60 seconds. There are some great pros to this. Um, there's no medication side effect. It works quickly. Um, there's good results, 80 to 90% remission rate, and um, can be used during pregnancy and nursing. Um, I, I noticed that when Max and Michaela talked about it, they said that um, there's a, almost 100% reduction in symptoms and an article they found had a 90% remission rate, which blew my mind. Yeah. Um, however, there are some cons to this, and, and they, they mentioned Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, um, and how she wrote a book about um, called Shockable, uh, or Shockaholic. And um, in that uh, book, she talked about how ECT was very powerful in reversing her stubborn depression, but there's some side effects, which include sedation, uh, memory loss, uh, patients may, may not be able to return to work you know, directly uh, for up to two weeks, some confusion, um, some amnesia, and then there's some physical side effects of tension, nausea, headache, jaw aches, and muscle aches, and it's not well tolerated with people with heart problems. I think it's interesting that uh, the one thing you didn't mention but might mean the most to a lot of people, you can't drive yourself home after the procedure, right? I, I'm getting to the point now where I have to go in to get a like some of those procedures done that nobody wants to talk about. Yes. And I'm like, hey, so can I drive myself home? They're like, <laughs> you're that dumb. <laughs> you can drive yourself home after ECT? No. Yeah, no, you can't. So you, you need someone to, to drive, you, drive you home. But you can drive yourself home from With TMS, from TMS so which I think is pretty cool. I want to talk about uh, the pros of an, another one, which is ketamine, which we mentioned earlier. Um, we have rapid remission, rapid response, um, and you know, within two hours, you can get response. But then there's this potential for abuse, the sedation risks, and then requiring this specialist in ketamine administration. 
So that, that's you know the barriers and the pros and cons of ketamine, ECT, and psychopharmacology, which are the main the current mainstays. Mainstays. You are making the case to me that RTMS should be considered as a viable alternative to ECT and uh, ketamine for treatment-resistant depression. That's correct. Let's hear it. So transcranial magnetic stimulation is a newer option to treat depression. It employs the principles of electromagnetic induction and activates regions of the brain by magnetizing neural pathways. I'll, I'll go further into the mechanism of action shortly. Um, in terms of the pros, it's a non-invasive therapy. It's well tolerated and safe for most people. It does not require sedation. There's few, there's, it's free of the pharmaceutical uh, side effects and it works alongside medication and other therapies. So it's, it's useful along with psychopharmacology and then it does not cause amnesia or memory loss like, EC, like ECT. Some of the cons though is it uh, works best with, it needs some supplemental therapy. Perhaps it doesn't with this new um, Stanford study. Um, it, it, it's not always covered by insurance, can be very expensive. It's covered for treatment resistant depression right now and OCD. There's a longer treatment than ECT, um, it's usually three to five times over the course of six weeks, and there's some discomfort on the scalp. Burns. Burns, yes. How, like, is Not that severe. Like, but is that like touching my head to the stove, or is that? Uh, no, I don't think it's that, that severe, okay. from what I understand. <laughs> All right, well, that's good. Yeah. Um, should, I, should I discuss, like, the, you know, the mechanism, the history? Would you like me to do that? Yeah, I'd like it. So we... Um, we Thomas um, may have put together 268 pages of content uh, in preparation for the podcast, uh, and and I honestly, in retrospect, I'm surprised he didn't do a podcast on OCD. Um, <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't say those things in a podcast, should I? Um, so so we had the discussion about how we tackle this. I read a couple of the papers that talked about the history of how did we get to this point, right? I think we talked about it a little bit with shocking people with ECT, right? Mm -hmm. But how in the world do we get to the point where we say, well, you know, I, I kind of think we can just stick a magnet on somebody's head and make them feel better. I think the history is worth repeating. So tell me the history. Sure. So the history dates back to the Roman Empire. Um, 46 AD, um, there's a physician who was treating Emperor Tiberius who had who had gout with aquatic animals capable of electrical discharge. Eels? So yeah, I, I, either eels, I'm not sure, but they were they were uh, having electrical discharge and he put them in the ocean. He put he would ask them to go in the ocean with his uh, probably the Tiberian Sea with his with his gout and use these eels to treat his gout. So um, didn't that, work by the way. At least that's what I think I read. Didn't work for gout. Not 100% sure. <laughs> but it was interesting. So so then um, in the 1600s uh, Queen Elizabeth's doctor, William Gilbert, um, published something called Demagnet, in which he described the use of electricity in medicine, and he coined the name electricity from the Greek electron for amber. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so a physician did that? Yes. Electricity, okay. And that was a physician to the Queen of, of England, Queen Elizabeth. And then in uh, the 1700s, a professor in Germany, Krasenstein, described the use of electricity for the treatment of paralysis. And he described the method that consisted of, of seating the patient on a wooden stool, stool and electrifying him by means of large revolving frictional glass glo globes and then drawing sparks from, from them through this, uh, their affected body parts. Did that work? 
I don't really know. <laughs> it seems, like, it seems <laughs> like we would see it if it worked, right? Yeah, and, and then another one that was interesting that I read was Anthony Mesmer, a German physician who was an astronomer and a, um, a early physicist. He, he developed the notion of magnetism, and he, he coined the, the term animal magnetism, and he described the response of the human body to heavenly bodies and their bodies' reciprocal interactions with the environment as analogs to, to the properties of the physical magnet. So he was one of the first to, to talk about magnetism in uh, treatment. And magnet therapy became um, very popular in the late 1700s. And it wasn't until a famous English scientist named Michael Faraday who, who developed Faraday's laws, which um, and he, it, Michael Faraday was involved in electromagnetism and electrochemistry, and he developed uh, Faraday's laws, which were the principle of induction, which um, basically it was he developed a current in a loop of wire by, by changing the magnetic field around the loop. And Faraday described this effect was mediated, mediated through the magnetic flux created by the changing, cur changing circuit and that, are, that alter its magnetic force. We're going to come back to this particular point. The way that you induce a field matters, right? So, yes. so Faraday might be, uh, e even though there's a lot of playing around with electricity, Faraday is the first guy that gets us into magnetism, right? Yes. Uh, although Mesmer is hinting at it. Yes. All right, now is Mesmer also the same guy that talked about uh, mesmerizing or hypnotism? Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, that's he, pretty cool. He's a father of hyp hypnosis. That was a lucky guess. <laughs> <laughs> Another interesting character in history, um, someone that we, uh, or it's been, his name has become very popular today, is Nikola Tesla. And in, in the U.S., in the late, latter part of um, the 19th century, um, he was experimenting with physiological effects of high-frequency current. And he developed the Tesla coils, and a patient would sit between the coils and, and experience a sensation which he, which he described as uh, like bombardments of miniature hailstorms. So that was um, some of the early history, but the real development of modern TMS came with Anthony Barker in 1985, who was a physician in Sheffield, England, who, or sorry, he was a, a scientist in Sheffield, England, who first started investigating the use of short pulse magnetic fields to stimulate human peripheral nerves in the 1970s. And his first device uh, developed the, the capability of generating a cortical activity or stimulating cortical activity, and um, the first therapeutic, therapeutic reports of the use of TMS came shortly after. The initial studies basically had a few healthy controls and suggested that RTMS applied to the left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex could induce a mild increase in self-reported sadness, and um, RTMS applied to the right dorsal lateral prefrontal, prefrontal cortex could improve self-related positive mood. So the prefrontal cortex became a target and it was really um, elucidated in research uh, for ECT in, in 1994. And then uh, in 1995, George et al. did a treatment for six medication non-resistant patients with the 20 hertz TMS applied to the left prefrontal cortex and it showed significant results against sham trials in, in uh, these 10 hertz treatment trials for these um, treatment resistant depression. All right, I want to I want to have you help me clarify something that I didn't understand. So I I was able uh, to get through the Barker article, I think, and I wasn't under the impression that Barker was actually looking at 
moved yet, right? This this was the interesting thing. He was just proving that you could get a magnetic uh, signal through the cranium mm -hmm. to the upper levels of the uh, of the um, striatum, and that when you could hit those nerves they could actually measure a downstream effect in the motor, uh, they could hit the motor cortex, not the striatum, I'm sorry. Yeah. So they'd hit the motor cortex and then they would be able to show that in the body with, I, I don't think it was like jerks or big movements, they had to have devices that could measure small movements was my the way I read that. Does that sound right? Yeah, and it would be in the contralateral side, so they would see movement in the finger and the contralateral side. Okay, so, so, so this was only uh, motor cortex, right? Yes. How do we get from motor cortex to uh, this place where targeting this left prefrontal cortex makes a difference? Yeah, so a few trials subsequent to that basically stimulate, were the, the precursor for, for these, these uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Um, I don't have them documented here on my notes, but I, I know there was like two studies, I think in, one in Germany that basically elucidated that and said, showed that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex was the, the main... Was a mood area. Mood area. So, yeah, so, the, so that was one of the things I was struggling to, to capture was that link between where we're testing motor cortex, but now we're finding um, these areas of the brain and the prefrontal cortex where, where we're able to affect mood. I, I had wondered if that was a serendipitous thing or if that was something that was thought out. I know that when I was training, and again, there's so many things that are lower that you go back and you read the data and you're like, oh, well, I was taught something wrong by Dr. Roundy at the Utah State Hospital, right? Um, so so you, one of the things I was taught as lower was that strokes, depending on which side of the brain, prefrontal, uh, left prefrontal or right prefrontal, seem to affect mood in that uh, left prefrontal, if I remember correctly, and I don't was associated with depression or vice versa mania and then the other side was associated with the other condition right and that seemed to be a fact that I knew at one point was it built on that that information at all or was it built on uh, like lesion models that seems to be where most of the stuff comes from I think it was based on Barker's um, model that people started to experiment and work and look at the use of uh, the of TMS in mood and I think two studies after that, I don't have the quote in front of me, but two studies after that were the ones that showed that mood was a, a, a place that we, we need to focus on with um, TMS based on the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Barker's article said, hey, you can either have a, well, let's see, how do you say it? You can, I won't even try because I'll get it wrong. But let me, let me uh, ask the question this way. They were only able to get the most surface areas of the brain when they were doing the original Barker studies. Tell me how TMS works, and and I think they had to get deeper in the brain to be affecting the, the areas of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that they needed to affect to get a, to get benefit in treatment of depression. So, talk me through mechanism of action now, if you would. Sure. So. Just overall, our brains have pathways that communicate via electrical or chemical signaling, and each is thought of uh, each thought or feeling co coincides with a particular pathway or roads that they signal and travel along. Transcranial magnetic stimulation and uh, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation are indirect and non-invasive methods used to induce excitability and changes in these pathways. In particular, it's 
been focused on the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex by some of the study earlier studies after Barker, which um, regulates executive function and um, regulates memories as well as inappropriate responses and inappropriate thoughts. So RTMS is involved in uh, passing an electrical current through a magnetic coil, uh, superficial to the scalp, producing a high-intensity magnetic field that, that passes through the scalp and skull and meninges to excite neuronal tissue. And the treatment is aimed at the location where um, the, most people's dorsal prefrontal, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex lies. And the mechanism, based on some of the new studies that have come out with the Stanford study, is hypothesized to be mediated by a part of the dorsal frontal cor cortex, prefrontal cortex called the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex. And repeated high-frequency excitation of that same brain region results in strengthening the, of synapses through a process known as long-term potentiation causing uh, fun functional connectivity. And long-term potentiation is a process which involves persistent strengthening of synapses that leads to a long-lasting increase in, a, in signal transmission between neurons in neural pathways. You and I were talking about this a little bit, uh, I want to say earlier this week or last week. Let me make sure I understand this. Normally we have happy feelings those happy feelings will use that, I'm gonna make this really simple for me, that happy feeling pathway that you described that involved the anterior cingulate gyrus, and it will strengthen that pathway. RTMS is doing that hundreds, thousands, thousands of, of times? times? Thousands of times. Yeah. So you're, you're like pounding that, that uh, neuron pathway so that it becomes stronger. Yes. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of Candel, the neurons that fire together, wire together. So you're building this pathway of happiness without having to work for the happy moments, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, so this electromagnetic field causes neurons at the surface of the brain, the cortex, to reach an action potential. And those neurons are turned on, which stimulate these pathways. And TMS excite, the, excite these pathways 3,000 times more than a singular positive thought. So you have one thought, you, you're exciting the, the, the pathway. Now give them TMS, and that's 3,000 times. And then a full treatment of TMS stimulates these pathways between 100,000 to 150,000 times more than a single thought. So like practicing tennis or piano, the brain is stimulating um, these positive pathways, and the more the brain pra practices these feelings of happiness and joy, the better it, the, the patient The better results. it is at having the ability to have happiness. Yes. So you might build a happiness pathway even though your body might not be, say, genetically disposed to that, or predisposed to that. Okay, so, so the next question then is this. I, I think that there is some importance in where the coil is placed and the shape of the coil. Do you have any comments that you want to add about that? Yeah, so um, there's really two major modalities right now. Um, one is a, a newer modality, but the first one is the, the standard RTMS modality that I've read about. Um, there's a high frequency and a low frequency, and the high frequency is greater than uh, one hertz, and that's used to stimulate the effect of the cerebral cortex, and then there's a low frequency, which is used as, as an inhibitory effect. And then there's this new, ther new version called the theta burst stimulation, which was used in the Stanford trial, which is a, a newer modal modality of RTMS. But it's uh, significantly shortened the RTMS treatment sessions from 37 minutes to, to, three, to three minutes and produces the equivalent response to an antidepressant. 
and it's FDA approved uh, for over 600 I, uh, ITBS, which is uh, intermittent theta burst pulses per second uh, for six weeks. Okay, so hold on, let me let me make sure I got this all clear then. So first of all, I think, I, I don't know the answer to the question about the coils. I think they have specific coil shapes and that creates a very specific magnetic cone or field, okay. right? I think, does that sound right? It sounds right. And then I think that that uh, well, I think some of this other stuff we'll get to it in just a moment. And then the second part of this, and it seemed like one of the things that was important, and I, I couldn't understand it. I read it a time or two, and I, I didn't fully understand this. Long-term potentiation is best achieved through either a cer certain frequency of stimulation or a certain amount of delay of stimulation. And I wasn't sure I tracked that very well. Did you have something you wanted to add about LTP? So I, I think with the new therapy, they found that intermittent um, um, pulses have, have shown to increase long-term potentiation. That's what I, I That's what you're reading. Reading from the Stanford studies. All right, so theta burst, is that the SAINT study? Yes, that's, and, that's a SAINT. And is that this, so is theta burst stimulation TBS, how does that differ from ITBS? So ITBS is intermittent Theta burst stimulation. Theta burst stimulation. Yeah. Okay, and so so the Saint Saint study, and we're going to go to this in just a few minutes, is a, a ITBS study. Exactly. Okay, so we may see in the future RTMS trans, uh, transition to ITBS. Yes. Okay, um, so so Thomas, let's suppose that I have uh, struggled with depression for the last twenty years. Um, I've had maybe sixty percent or seventy percent recovery uh, using like the PHQ. And I just feel like life should have a little more color and flavor in it. You and I talk, and you say, "Hey, listen, I have uh, I have a clinic you could go to." W what does that look like when I walk into the TMS clinic? How, how does that? I mean, how does it work? Is it like a car dealership? Is it more like a Smith supermarket? T tell me what it looks so like. It can be like an outpatient medical office where the device sits in a room, and you sit in a special chair. And during the procedure, patients can listen to music, watch TV. I heard some patients like to talk to their therapist or their um, the person conducting the, the TMS. So it's a, kind of a comfortable environment, very different than ECT in the sense that ECT, you're required to go into the hospital setting, you're required anesthesia, you're required some succinylcholine. So it, there's... IV, gown. IV, yes. And everybody knows... If you're wearing a gown, your butt's hanging out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. true. Um, so it's it's a basically out, outdoor uh, outpatient, um, you know, non-invasive treatment. Um, and then you know the good thing is that patients can drive themselves home. They can drive themselves uh, home and to work. They can resume their daily activities. There's a, a few companies that have different modifications of of the machine. And I'd like Ryan to talk about um, some of the FDA trial or the FDA approval process as well as some of the companies. He did some research Bef on that. Before he does that, um, let me ask one other question if I can. So sure. as, a, as a kid, I remember watching all of the old 50s and 60s TV shows that were rerun, and they, they showed uh, women in the hairdresser, and they had this great big thing that went over their head. Is that kind of like what happens with RTMS? Yeah, so it, it's usually on the left portion of the head. Um, first, you go into the doctor's office, and they kind of draw on a on your scalp using a, um, 
kind of like a paper, and that that localizes the dorsal frontal, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. and then after that fir- first session, um, you're you know if you're stimulating the motor cortex, you can um, you can show results in the finger, and then the subsequent ses- sessions over the course of six weeks, um, usually it's three to five times per week over over six weeks are um, are are preset with that initial settings. Okay, so so you it's like dose finding or, or location finding uh, during that first yeah, one. Yeah, so the, f- the first session is longer, and then the, these subsequent sessions are shorter, and then with ITBS, it's becoming even shorter. All right, so I remember we were uh, talking about this, I think, and I, I think the whole group was together, right? We had Katie and Ann with us as well, and I think we were doing the uh, psycho, uh, psychopathology assignment, and somebody asked the question, is this, maybe I asked if it was FDA approved, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I know RTMS was FDA approved, but I think the question came up, how does that work, right? We have some fundamental differences between devices and medications. There's also evolution of um, software programs that now have approval. There's things like medical foods, which are labeled as like, well, it probably can't hurt you, but it doesn't have the same kind of rigorous data behind it that I would say the medication trials have. So uh, Ryan, you were the one that I think went and looked this question up for us and brought it to the podcast. Yeah, I did. So really to understand how RTMS devices are are approved, FDA approved to be used. A couple of things we have to understand. So first of all, they're considered by the FDA to be class two medical devices because of the contact of the scalp. So basically what that means is that they're more likely to come in sustained contact with the body. So, so class one, like invasive, goes inside the body? No, class one is a step, uh, I guess, less invasive. So like a tongue depressor would be a class one. Okay. Touch the body, doesn't stay in sustained contact. Class two, other examples, just to kind of help understand it, catheters, blood pressure cuffs, things that are in sustained contact. So blood pressure cuff is like RTMS. Uh, That might be a stretch. But But they're they're in the same classification. But they're in the same class as far as their contact with the human body. Okay. So it's a contact amount. It's it's the amount of contact. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the FDA considers it class two. Um, So, and then the second thing to understand in order to know FDA approval is... Uh, in 2007, we had a study uh, that we talked about the ones that kind of led up to this, but it was in 2007 that O'Riordan was the primary researcher that spearheads this study that's done at multiple locations in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Um, and basically, they're able to show that TMS is effective in treating major depression and there's minimal side effects. And it's really this study that is the catalyst to allow the research sponsor, Neuronetics, to get FDA approval for their Neurostar TMS device. So, so is there just one study requirement? I think most FDA trials for medications require two trials. How, how does that work? So as far as I know, this one study, with it being multiple locations, large enough study sample study, the data that had come out previously, this was the one that allowed Neuronetics to, to be the first to get their device FDA approved. It, in uh, in medicine, it seems that even the Me Too medications, so mm-hmm. if we're talking about uh, fluoxetine, which was the first SSRI, right, um, th- there were a number of medications that followed. Each of those seemed to be subtly different in mm-hmm. the way they affected people. They all required their own in, um, FDA approval. Yep. 
does and there's sort of a patent protection, right, that allows yeah. people to, to monetize the, the work that they've done to create something that reduces depression. Sure. How did, and you said Neuralink, is that Neuronetics? Yeah, Neuronetics is the first. So, so this Neurostar device, are the other things like Apollo, Brandsway Deep, Cloud TMS, MagStem, mm-hmm. MagVenture, mm-hmm. NextStem, are all of these devices essentially doing exactly the same thing? So the process for them to get their device approved is that they have to go through the, they have to submit what's called a 510K to the FDA, uh-huh. which is basically a summary of all the data on their device. So that includes trials, right? Their own trials that they've conducted, all the details about the machine, uh, which is pretty extensive, but um, if there's any adverse effects that they find that are not already commonly known uh, to the procedure, if there's a different area of the brain that it can be used on, they've got to show illustrations or photographs that show how it's used, and then all of kind of the physics of it, right? So coil positioning, magnetic field characteristics, output waveform, uh, all of these things have to be included in their report to the FDA. Was there any meaningful differences between the devices that you saw? So that's interesting. So some of them have been compared head to head, but not all of them uh-huh. have been compared. So there is some more research to be done comparing them. Um, but yeah, that's something that's being looked at. Did there seem to be differences or was it, or not, did it, did it seem like whoever sponsored the trial had the best data? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what it's all right. I'm not cynical at all. Yeah. Now, now you know, scalp burns. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Thomas said scalp discomfort. Yeah. <laughs> so I, the two kind of adverse effects that we specifically pay attention to with this are irritation of the scalp. Mm-hmm. Or scalp burns, and then, and this is kind of interesting when you consider ECT, but not inducing a seizure, right? Not induce, and and it does induce seizures. I, th- I think there are some seizures that have been induced by this. Well, is that and, right? and just with you know ECT specifically doing that, right? But but yes. So I, it seems like I, I think Thomas, you didn't mention the risk of seizures. They I think they're very rare. That's what I understand. Yeah, very yeah. rare, but that's yeah. part of uh, part of the you know five ten k or whatever. The surveillance data to, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. studies I read, the patients didn't have seizures. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with duration of the stimulus and the frequency, the hertz. Fascinating stuff. Uh, so, yeah. is there more money to be made in medical devices than with medications for people? And, and I'm not talking about as physicians. Sure. Um, Fortunately, I work at the state hospital, and, and my salary is based on the work that I'm assigned to do, right? It's, it's not by me choosing a more lucrative pathway. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do, you, do companies have uh, an incentive right. to go after one versus the other? I don't know the you know, specific answer to that, but the fact that since 2007, we've developed all of these others, Apollo, Brainsway D, Cloud TMS, MagStem, MagVenture, it's gotta be something in it for them to develop all these additional ways to do TMS. My, my understanding is these companies uh, have a subscription plan, essentially, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as buy your own device. Mm-hmm. You might be able to buy your own x-ray machine. Right. You might be able to buy your own MRI. Mm-hmm. You cannot buy your own RTMS device. Correct. You, you uh, pay to have it, and if you don't fill the device, you might be losing money. 
I worry about that being a perverse incentive in healthcare. Uh, it also makes me think that perhaps there should be somebody who this is all I do. You refer to me for RTMS. I don't have to worry about choosing which of my patients uh, have RTMS. They're referred to me, and then I say yes or no, right? right. And, and I, I think there might be a model for somebody that becomes an expert in RTMS. Okay. Uh, is one of the things I ask all of my students, um, I say something along the lines of, is there a Cochrane database uh, summary or meta-analysis on, on this uh, topic. And I think with lavender oil, we decided there might not yet be. Andrew's over there grimacing. <laughs> but there might be data. Yeah, um, I think we'll have to look into it a little bit. Silexan? Yeah, Silexan. Uh, it looks like here in the U.S., the uh, FDA doesn't um, have to do with any uh, oils, but in Germany, it looks like there's some trials and some, some data we're going to look into. So data's good. Cochrane data, better. You found Cochrane data, Thomas. Yeah, so I found that there was 5,266 trials ongoing for TMS currently. And those trials are not only in depression, they're in, in several other areas, including OCD, which it's already approved for. Um, in addition, uh, PTSD was another one that is it's uh, that people are looking at anxiety disorder um, pervasive developmental disorders such as, such as Asperger's and autism and then one I found interesting was stroke 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 what are they hoping to have happen with stroke did you I, I just saw just some, I just saw some studies showing that they're they're showing that they could try to stimulate uh, motor response in uh, patients with stroke so after let's say you have a, a um, you know, contralateral loss of your muscle muscle strength um, from an ischemic stroke. Um, you can basically we can stimulate those muscles through focusing on the motor cortex. So essentially, LTP of the motor cortex. Yes. Interesting. I'm going to uh, skip something briefly. Okay. Right, this is going to throw you off. Um, you are interested in the Saint trials, right? Yes. I want you to tell me the Deidre Lehman story. And then I want you to tell me about the, the uh, Saint yeah. Trials that captured your attention. So, I mean, really, it was an article that I read that was produced, it was an editorial produced by Stanford that got me excited most, mostly about um, TMS and the new therapies of TMS. So I read about this patient named Deidre Lehman, who was one of the patients in the, the Stanford Saint Trial, the... Uh, Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy Trial. If, you, and, if your study doesn't have a good name, don't, yeah, don't I mean, bother. That's fantastic. They, they ended up changing the name to SNT, Stanford Neuromodulation Therapy. I think they should have stayed with the saint. I don't know why. I mean, the saint seems perfect. But nevertheless, let me tell you a little bit about Deidre. So Deidre was a six-year-old who woke up one morning, and uh, this was June 30th, 2018, and she said she was hit by a tsunami of darkness. She felt like she was struggling with bipolar disorder all her adult life, um, but medications, psychotherapy uh, did not really help her mood and she was feeling very depressed. She said she felt a constant chattering in her, her brain. It was like as though um, a voice was talking to her about depression, agony, and, and hopelessness. And she felt like she told her husband, you know, she's thinking about um, committing suicide. She she said that I'm, I'm going down, I'm heading towards suicide, and there seems to be no other option. 
So Lehman's psychiatrist, who was um, familiar with the Saint study, referred her to Stanford. And afterwards, uh, um, she went and did the, the, the trial, and they pinpointed the spot in her brain that would uh, benefit from the stimulation. And then Lehman went through this therapy. And by the third round of the therapy, the chatter started to ease. And by lunch, she said, I could look in my husband's eyes and uh, with each session, the chatter got less and less until it was completely quiet. And then since undergoing the same treatment, she, she's completely um, completed her bachelor's degree at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And she had previously dropped out as a young woman because of her bipolar symptoms. And um, she said she used to cry at the slightest little thing, but now um, things seem happy. Um, her, the bad thoughts have gone, gone away. Um, she feels resilient and stable. And she says she's in a much, much more a peaceful state of mind and able to enjoy the positive things in life with the energy to get things done. So this study really excited me. Like, you know, this, this treatment was a short treatment. And now, you know, a few years later, she's saying like it, it really helped her. And she's not suffering from this bipolar depression, which had really taken over the majority of her adult life. Forty years later, she finished college. Yes. So the the Saint trials, the SNT trials. Tell me, you have I don't know five or six trials listed here. You've you've talked about it just a little bit. Um, we've covered some of this in other places. What I want you to do, if you wouldn't mind, is go into the trials and pull out highlights that you think might be important. Yes. Sh sure. So. There are really two trials. One was the Saint trial, and then there was a subsequent um, trial for the called the SNT trial. The Saint trial was done in 2017 to 2019, and in that trial, Stanford researchers hypothesized that some modifications to transcranial magnetic stimulation could improve its effectiveness. The researchers used magnetic resonance imaging of the brain, fMRI, to locate not only the dorsal prefrontal cortex, but a particular subregion, which we call the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex. And they, they pinpointed the subregion, and, um, and they, were, they showed that this was overactive in depression. And they used the ITBS protocol, which is the intermittent theta burst stimulation protocol. And I think they used the MAG um, venture uh, version of ITBS. And basically, they, they suggested that a stronger dose of eight, 1,800 pulses per session instead of six, 600 for the other ITBS models would be more effective. And they did 50-minute uh, inter-session inter intervals, and they delivered over 10 sessions f on five consecutive days. And 90% of the people who were participants in the trial um, had remission. So a little bit about the participants. The participants were... Participants can, I, were can I interrupt for oh, just sure. a second? Um, so, so this is different than RTMS. RTMS, we talked about three to five sessions over six weeks. Yes. And, and now what you're having... Or three to five sessions per week over six weeks. Over six weeks, yeah. yes. Uh, that's what I meant to say, <laughs> actually. Now what you're talking about is five consecutive days where you have a session, a break, a session. Yes, a 50-minute inter intersessional inter interval um, with, with 10 daily sessions. 10 daily sessions. So yes. five sessions, sorry, sorry, 
10 sessions times five days, 50 sessions in a week. Yes. Wow. So, so, and the sessions are how long again? Um, usually three minutes. So three minute sessions, 150, so, so 30 minutes of session time, uh, nine interval times, right? Uh, so uh, just a little bit under 150 minutes. So you're there for four hours. Well, no, so the interval times are, there's 50-minute intercession intervals. So there's 50, there's three minutes, then 50 minutes, right. then three minutes. So roughly 20 minutes times 10, right? So 200 minutes almost. Okay. So I think that's about just a little over three hours, between three and four hours for the total time, right? I think, I sorry, I think maybe you misheard me, 50, five, zero. Oh, five, zero. So yeah. 50 minutes yeah. intercession time. Okay. So, so you're there all, you're, you're there all day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Five zero yes I did and ten, and ten sessions I did mishear that so that's five hundred uh, minutes that's almost ten hours that you're sitting in the doctor's office under one magnet yes and that's a full week yes but the results for for the trial have been fantastic and it's wow. early and so I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the the participants and how they were recruited so Stanford recruited them from the Depression Research Clinic at Stanford at Stanford University. And they had study advertisements and clinical referrals. There, there was some diagnostic criteria. Um, one is that they had to have uh, no psychotic major depress, a non-psychotic major depressive episode as part of, of either a major depressive disorder or bipolar two disorder. They had to have no response to at least one antidepressant. They're required to have a 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale (HamD) score of greater than 20 a negative urine drug screen, a negative urine pregnancy test, if female, and excluded if they are, they're excluded if they have contraindications to RTMS, including seizures, metallic implants in the head, cardiac pacemakers, or neurological disorders. The, the size of the trial was basically a small, very small trial, so there's 23 participants. One participant was screened out after enrollment for having a very uh, high motor threshold. One participant was screened out because of a history of multiple prior therapeutic intolerances um, to other previous treatments. Um, I think one, they, they had done ketamine and they, they didn't have a good results of that. So the final sample was only 21 patients. So that's one of the, the issues with the study. It's a very small study. Can, can I jump in again? Sure. We talked about uh, metal and magnetism, and I think I asked you if it's because they heat up. Did you ever follow up on that? I didn't. I did not. I, I think that's not. what happens with MRIs, right? If MRI and uh, MRI, the metal objects heat up, you can't have those. Andrew's looking it up for us while, while we talk about it. The second thing I was going to ask about is it is contraindicated in pregnancy, right? Yes. Where ECT is safe to the fetus, TMS does not appear to be, or we just don't know? The studies are, are, have not started in, in pregnancy, so they, they are not allowing it to go on in pregnancy at this point. So Inevitably, somebody yeah. will be pregnant and we'll get data, surveillance data. Okay. Yeah. Do, you, do you see? Yeah, so it looks like here that obviously if they're ferrous-based materials, so nickel alloy, stainless steel, they can be drawn to the magnets, actually with a magnetic um, pull, but other um, implants can be heated up, cause localized tissue uh, heating and damage. Crosses, yeah. mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what I thought I knew. All right, so we, we talked just very briefly about pregnancy. Uh, we talked about the sample size. I do think it's interesting that they ejected the one person. It sounds like they might have wondered if that one person was like signing up for the trials. I, I, I have some skepticism about this trial, 
person. Yes. But I don't know. Uh, keep going. Yeah, so some of the methods, so it was precision targeting of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex um, was the was the, the way that they used, did the trial. And then they used MRI and resting state functional MRI to locate the subgenual um, anterior cingulate cortex. And they used algorithms to really locate that region of the brain, three-dimensional three mapping using fMRI. Um, some of the things that I found interesting were the clinical outcomes were um, based on some scores which are used in treatment-resistant depression. The Montgomery Asperger's Depression Rating Scale, MAD, MAD RS, um, was Mad Madras. Madras. <laughs> and then it's like sitch caps. The sitch caps. <laughs> and, and of course, there might be somebody out there that goes Madras, roundy. Yeah. And then, and then the uh, also the Hamilton uh, rating scale for depression, and then the Beck's depression inventory second secondary edition. Um, so, um, response was defined as a reduction of greater than fifty percent on these scales, and then remission was defined as a score of less than eleven on the Madras. Uh, score of less than eight on the 17 item Hamdi scale, score of less than five on the six item Hamdi scale, and a score score of um, less than 13 on the BDI2 scale. And the results were there was no serious side effects, no negative cognitive side effects following SAINT, and there was mild side effects of fatigue, some discomfort at the stimulation site, and uh, facial mu muscle, muscle uh, uh, changes during stimulation. No, we, we, we haven't seen that one before, right? Yeah. Interesting. We, we haven't discussed it yet. No, that, yeah. was, that was one of the things that they found, some facial muscle changes during stimulation. But afterwards, the, the, they didn't have that. It wasn't like a permanent weakness. Yeah. It's okay. So then, um, you know, the, I think the results were, are what was astounding to me. Um, so the, the results were 90%, 90.48% of all responders were in remission after Saint. So all but one. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, this result was, was very significant um, results. You know, and th these are you know basically um, you know, similar to the ECT results which we've seen in the past. So this is really um, a, a phenomenal therapy. You know, with a you know, small study, um, the the response rate was 2.3 days to receive response and 2.6 days to to achieve remission in. The majority of these patients. So when you were talking about uh, Deidre, this this person that talked about their experience with ITBS, um, it was repetitive treatment episodes. She started seeing the clearing after each one. How it, it, I've always been of the thought that um, long-term potentiation is a longer-term process. So is it? Are the neurons strengthening that quickly? Apparently, at least at least from this first study. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, some of the, you know discussion problems or discussion things I'd like to talk about were um, and problems. Some were, uh, of the study there was it's a small study, right? Six per participants were retreated after they no longer met the remission criteria, which was like twenty weeks later. Mm -hmm. um, the same significantly reduced depressive symptoms and suicidal ideation in patients with treatment-resistant depression within five days, as we as we talked about, and the remission rate we observed is higher than reported open-label remission rates for um, the standard RTMS protocols, 
which was 37%, ECT, which is 48%, and ketamine, which is 31%. And then I think some of the limitations of the study was it's a small sample size, had open label design, and then there was no sham control. In all fairness, this is a this is a proof of concept study. Proof of concept, and and they followed it up with a study that addresses some of these concerns, yes. right? So so even though there's not a sham, there's or not a blinded control arm or whatever they yeah, however you want to refer to that. So so tell me about how they addressed these weaknesses of the study in their follow up study. So the follow up study was called the SNT trial. Again, I don't know why they moved from the Saint to SNT because one name is very strong for. Uh, you know, I think as a brand, but they moved, they moved to SNT, and this was a uh, double-blinded randomized control study, the Stanford Neuromodulation Therapy it was an, is the name, and previously referred to as the Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy, and participants uh, with treatment-resistant depression were, who were currently experiencing moderate to severe depressive episodes were randomly assigned to to receive active or sham SNT. Um, resting state functional MRI was used like in the SYNC trial, and um, the, the primary outcome was also using the MADRS, MADRS, uh, four weeks. MADRS. <laughs> yeah, after four weeks of treatment. All right, guys, you're, I, I think you're teasing me now. <laughs> Sitch caps, mad RS. And, All right. And so um, the results were 12, in the 12 participants um, had 85.7% in the active uh, S&T group met the criterion for response. And then 78.6% met the, the criteria for remission on the MADRS score in at least one of the five uh, post-treatment assessment assessments, which included um, uh, remission, uh, sorry, in one of the five uh, post-treatment criteria, which included this MADRAS scale. So I, I just want to make sure I understand this. Roughly 24, 25 participants in this study, 12 active arm, uh, and I don't see how many were in the inactive arm. Most people are getting a response, and at at least some point during that first week of intense treatment, some people are feeling remission. Yes. Okay. 85.7%, or sorry, 78.6% felt remission, and 85.7% felt a response. So it's a pretty high remission rate. Um, and the effect size was, was fairly large. I think it was, it's, uh, let's see. It's going to be around some, somewhere around 0.5, it looks like, or maybe a little higher, 0.6. I think it was higher than that. Effect yeah, I, I'm looking at, uh, so I'm looking at the remission rate in the sham treatment group, which is zero percent, right? Um, and the intention to and the response rate, so some improvement, uh, is thirteen percent. So if you subtract what thirteen from eighty-five, you get seventy-two. Your NNT is two for every two people you're treating. You're benefiting. Your your response from treatment is one. One of those two people is getting well from treatment, right? I copy this from the article, and it's uh, line two basically said that the effect size of the Cohen study was 1.7 uh, and then and, and, and they end up having to stop the study which was very interesting to me because of the, the effect size which is I think higher than I've read in even the ECT studies. Sometimes we stop studies because it's clear they are harming people, right, the intervention. In this case, they stopped the study because it was unethical to continue sham treatment when it was so painfully obvious that the active arm was effective, right? Yeah. Okay. 
So th um, this study also had limitations. It had, was a small sample size, and the study relied on clinical assessments to measure improvement. You know, so it's based on um, the patient's um, response to these questions, the the madras questions, and it was a single site. Um, likely, the people in the in the study were highly educated sample, and it may not have been a diverse population in the sample. So that's something that we should. Um, consider that the, the demographics of the population more studies to be done before we jump on the bandwagon completely before yes. we buy a device yes before we lease a device or subscribe to a device <laughs> I guess I should say um, I want to just uh, go through a couple of things fairly quickly um, there are some requirements to be able to get RTMS not mm -hmm. we're, we're now going to step away from ITBS and go back to RTMS, right? Uh, what are the requirements to be able to get RTMS? So the, the patient must be currently battling a depressive episode with episodes durations documented with uh, coordinating uh, dates. Um, with the current depressive episode, the patient must have undergone failed antidepressant trials. Uh, the name of the antidepressant, its dose, dates taken, and the reason why the treatment was abandoned should also be presented. The number of antidepressants and types of augmentation required um, should be presented to the insurance plan. And then patients must dem demonstrate that a trial of evidence-based psychotherapy was also ineffective. The duration of and frequency of their visits must be documented along with the modality of the therapy and the name of the professional providing, providing it. They must also have been diagnosed with the uh, DSM-5 diagnosis of F33.2 recurrent depressive disorder, current episode severe without psychotic symptoms, or F32.2 severe depressive episode without psychotic symptoms, and the severity of the depression required as a, is required as a measure of, of clinical rating scales, and those will de defer by insurance plan. In cases where the patient has undergone previous TMS or ECT treatment, they will need to present the treatment details, including the first and last dates of the treatment and the scores from the, rest, from the rating scales done at those first and last treatments to see you know, why they didn't work. All right, so I think I know why all of this is done. A treatment to a provider usually costs somewhere around 200, it, 10, 15 years ago, it cost about $200 for that uh, 50 minute visit with a provider. Um, the, the follow-up appointments cost somewhere between, I think, uh, 30 to $70, depending on how you code it, right? And you'd see somebody maybe once a month, maybe. So 12 visits to a psychiatrist at 70 bucks is $480. The initial visit is 200, you're in six to $700 for the psychiatrist cost, maybe, maybe. And then you're also, uh, if you start with something like fluoxetine, a very reasonable choice, you're in somewhere around uh, $4 a month if you go pick that medication up at Walmart, right? So that's 48 more dollars. We're in $750 for the treatment of depression. Versus if we go straight to TMS, what does that cost? So from what I read, one course of TMS is pretty expensive. It can be anywhere between 6000 and 12000 out of pocket. And how often would you need to go back and get uh, like a, I don't know, a tune-up? Um, so I think it's usually just a one-time treatment is it? Versus, so you, versus like ECT, which is multiple treatments over multiple, over multiple days. And this is a one-time. The RTMS is usually six, 60, six weeks. And then this uh, ITBS is... Um, 
a week or, or over a week yeah and and the goal is with these treatments is a once in a lifetime treatment although it, it sounds a little bit like with the blinded study that with the sham arm that there were people that I'm sorry one of the arms one of the trials suggested that people do need repeat maybe not a course but repeat treatments yeah and I think I, I it sounds like we don't have the data at least amongst us right now what that might look like my impression of ECT is that you would have uh, some people that have scheduled long-standing appointments you have an appointment every month for ECT that's how you stay well right um, and then there are some people that have intermittent courses and some people who might have one one treatment course right yeah. so I so I'm guessing that this will be something like that when it's all the way done when, when yeah. we have more data so I think what I read for, or what I heard from Max and Michaela's podcast was that it was $54,000 for a life year and that really extended people's life I think it was like 16 to 20 years yeah. and so in, in this in this case right now it's between six and twelve thousand dollars for towards remission uh-huh and so it's it's significantly cheaper but it's still it's still more, expensive it's still expensive it seems like a reasonable alternative to uh, ECT and clearly when people haven't had remission with other uh, treatments this seems like a very viable alternative um, I think other than uh, I, I think we've mentioned the side effects and contraindications a couple of times um, we have mentioned it has an FDA approval for OCD, which I'm guessing would have the same kind of criteria that you listed for depression. You've got some other potential applications for TMS. You've even mentioned those, I think, in other contexts before. I'm going to ask you one question that you're completely unscripted for. Okay. What's the coolest thing about uh, ITBS? I think the rapid response that these patients have received, I think, is the coolest thing. The fact, I mean, this uh, Deborah Lehman's response was ph phenomenal. You know, she did this over the course of one week, and now two years later, she's a lot better. And she and was done with college. And done with college, yeah. And she couldn't really um, function in society, and now this has really changed her life. That that to me is fundamental. Like this is this is uh, blows my mind at how. The possibilities of this treatment in really helping people with depression, which is a major problem in our society, as we talked about in the beginning of this, of this uh, episode. You took a slightly different approach to the podcast. You you scared me a little bit. Um, not not by the number of pages. I think we're all intimidated by that. Um, <laughs> I've had a few other students that have done similar kinds of things. You listened to me. Early in the rotation, I, I said something I don't think I've ever said before to students, right? That a lot of papers that we read have this very uh, classic persuasion model. What's the problem? What are the barriers to solving the problem? What's my solution? How would my solution work? Right, this uh, three or four step model, depending on who you're talking to. And you made the case, uh, I think the persuasive case for RTMS and maybe even ITBS more than RTMS. Give that like case to me in a nutshell. Like this is your chance to to wrap that. Like why should I start doing uh, RTMS and then potentially ITBS eventually? Yeah, as I as I mentioned in the beginning, the, the depression is a very severe problem affecting 
many people around the United States. It really affects our productivity. It affects how we live. It affects our our, our society as a whole. It's it's nothing we can just uh, push under the rug. There's a lot of treatments out there, and they've been developing over the course of the last hundred years, including psychopharmacology, ECT, ketamine. Um, but these treatments, CBT, CBT, yes, CBT <laughs> is beautiful. These these treatments have a lot of benefit to the patients, but there are drawbacks and side effects. Uh, not so much from the CBT, but from some from the psychopharmacology, the ECT, the ketamine, and the the application, their invasiveness. There there are some challenges with these therapies. TMS is new. It's it's coming out. It's there's a possibility to basically address the psychopharmacology, the challenges that we find in psychopharmacology, ECT, and uh, with ketamine treatments in a non-invasive way that has had very high efficacy in terms of remission and response. And so for me, that's very exciting, and I think it, it could really help in our society where, where depression is a significant challenge, and treatment-resistant depression is even a, another bigger challenge that we're facing. I asked you a question, or I made a comment uh, in our discussions leading up to this as well. I think I asked the question or, or made the statement something along the lines of, I'm under the impression that our RTMS uh, tool is more effective now than it was initially. I think when I was initially looking at articles coming out on this, they seemed I, I was very skeptical of the outcomes. That seems to be gone. We're past that stage. By any chance, did you ask your mom if her experience with RTMS has, uh, that, that her outcomes have improved over time, that we're better at it, that the, the, the strategies are better, that our targeting is better, anything along those lines? Is that a conversation you've had with your mom? Yeah, so we did have the conversation. She mentioned to me that it's, it's really better with a concurrent medication and concurrent therapy. Hmm. However, I think that ITBS or the TBS approach might be better than she has experienced before, because this is newer therapy, a newer a approach. strategy, maybe a strategy yeah. that's more effective. And, that, and that's why I'm really excited about the, the SAINT and the SNT trial, because it's showing that um, this, this treatment can be alone, could be very dynamic and very beneficial in the treatment of depression. Sounds great. Uh, let's get a, let's, I think, I think we've covered everything. We have, I think. Thoroughly, you did a great <laughs> job, Thomas. Um, last thoughts, Ryan. Anything you'd like to add or any comments you'd like to make? You know, I think I'm excited about the emerging data. I think that there's some very interesting and promising results. I have to also say that, you know, I studied neuroscience in undergrad, and, and something that kept coming back to me with while we were sitting here is I remember early on in those classes them saying, if a mile represents everything there is to know in neuroscience, how far have we come? And the professor saying, maybe three steps. <laughs> and, and there is an aspect of this that feels that way to me. You know, you put a magnet over the head, you run a current in a very vague part of the brain, and it quickly <laughs> fixes the If I'm being honest, it feels to me like we've got a ways to go. J just to understand it. Not saying that it can't be therapeutically and clinically relevant and beneficial, but, it, but that's exciting to me, that we have a lot to learn, we have a lot to study with it. Yeah, it was uh, along those lines. One of the first things I asked myself is, 
how does somebody figure this out, right? How does somebody come up with the idea that repetitive stimulation can strengthen the neuronal pathways and build LTP? And then you start hearing things, like you start thinking, you know, I, I know I was taught these things at one point, mm-hmm. and, and maybe people are just better at putting this picture together than I am. But I, And, and how, how do you know the things that are happening in a human brain without cutting it apart and looking at it, right? So, yeah, I'd like your thoughts. Andrew? I think um, seeing a, a procedure that can be done like this, especially outpatient, is a, would be a huge boon if they can really continue to see these kind of results and show that it's more efficacious, especially than long-term therapies with uh, pharmacotherapies. I think um, while I was on a couple of my primary care rotations, I was able to see uh, patients that were frustrated and had their, their quality of life greatly reduced by kind of hunting for the uh, trial and error method of treatment of depression and uh, it would be a huge relief to them to have some kind of a solution that seems so immediate and so drastic as as these studies have shown. Yeah, TBS. One of the things that that is always on my mind um, 20 plus years ago when I was going through medical school uh, I guess closer to 25, we had classes about um, studies and how they were picking a population and, and the, the statistical significance of the, of the outcomes, right? And there, there was sort of this skepticism associated with that, that all of these studies are just bunk, we just, and yet I, I think one of the things that personalized medicine is telling us is that if you can pick the right patient and understand the biology and target the treatment to the right biology, your studies are going to be lights out. Sort of like uh, the, the colon cancer study that we just saw, right, where everybody had remission of colon cancer. Did you guys see that mm-hmm. uh, that, that article? Uh, the, the one of you that is... Uh, not at the end of your third year and on the elective rotation <laughs> is able to nod yes. The other two of you are buried, I get it. Um, and so, so I think what's really fascinating about this is it does escape personalized medicine, right? This is a, this is a potentially an all-comers kind of treatment, at least with ITBS, if the data holds up. There would be very few people that would go into this treatment and not have benefit, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. That completely escapes the notion of personalized medicine to me. Thomas, your final thoughts. Depression is a major problem that is affecting our society. We need to find solutions that are affordable, effective. TMS is early in its adoption. ITBS is even earlier in its adoption. But perhaps it could be a a useful tool for the treatment of depression. More studies are needed to be done to evaluate ITBS against other therapies like ECT, uh, against pharmacology, but I think it's an exciting new area and a new field that's evolving. Pretty cool stuff. I, I don't think I have a single thing I could add to that, Thomas. Well done. I have something that I want oh, to add. I please. just want to thank you for this opportunity. Uh, we've learned a lot. Thank you for challenging us. It's been, it's been great to be here. We've learned a lot about some of the most difficult patients here um, at the, at the uh, hospital, and I think um, it's been a wonderful experience for me, a great learning experience, and I, I'll cherish it for a long time. I would say it's slightly different. I would say that you had an experience to meet the best patients 
in the world who deal with some of the most difficult conditions and the more we can think about the illness and I think you guys do that right I, I know you st- I know that's what you meant right I know, yeah. I know I know who you are Thomas um, but I want everybody that listens to know that it's the illness it's it's and it's among the most challenging thing in the world and it's so rewarding to watch patients who start to have a recovery I think you have seen a couple of really good recoveries over the month and I'm I'm under the impression that uh, Thomas when you get your own uh, magnet Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to see those day after day after day, and it what it's kind of uh, you know we all do what makes us tick, right? And I'm kind of thinking that you're going to really enjoy what you're doing, even though you left a, a really wonderful career. It sounds like if if there are no other last notes, uh, thank you very much. That's a very kind compliment. On that note, guys, team out. Team, team out. out.